following sermon is from Dr. Dan Kitnoya, pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in Tilton, Illinois. If you've never reached out to Calvary before, we'd like to hear from you. Visit our website, calvarytilton.com. That's calvarytilton.com. And now, here's Dr. Dan. This is the newest member of Calvary Baptist Church. His friends say, his friends call him Slim. As you can see, he's, well, he's, he's not skin and bones. He's just bones. He's a skeleton. He said when he got baptized, the water just cut right through him, and it was so cold it cut him to the bone. Now, you're probably wondering why on a day like today, the pastor would uh, have a skeleton cut out uh, on the stage. And, well, there's a reason for that. In our pastor this morning, James, in chapter 2, verse 14 through 26, he is going to confront Christians because there is a void in their expression of faith. He doesn't say that they are not Christians, by the way. An important distinction. But he does call them out because their faith, their faith is lacking something. It's like they're a skeleton without muscle or skin. It's like they're, well... To be frank, it's kind of like they're wearing a costume of Christianity. We're going to read verse 26, but keep your Bible open. We're going to look at the whole section this morning. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for today and the opportunity to laugh at technical difficulty. We do thank you for sound systems, but I pray for smooth sailing the rest of the sermon. I do thank you for everybody who's worked hard today to make this uh, a wonderful Sunday. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would move and minister in our midst as we take a look at the Word of God together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, tomorrow is Reformation Day and uh, also Halloween. Reformation Day is, if, does anybody know what Reformation Day is? Curious? All right, so I'm the only one who has the nerd decoder ring. Okay, Pastor Rob also has the nerd decoder ring. Reformation Day is the celebration that they do in Germany uh, of the day that Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses to the door of the, the, of the church in Wittenberg. And it started the Protestant Reformation where they uh, reclaimed the doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It began from a biblical study. He had been, he was a monk, he grew up uh, Catholic, and in that faith there was, you got to be baptized to be saved, you got to be a part of the church to be saved, you got to do this to be saved, and you could lose all those things if you mess up the wrong way. And, and on and on it goes. There's a lot of those things, but they, they reclaimed, there was a restoration of pure doctrine that began when Martin Luther discovered what was hidden in plain sight, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But when we look at James chapter 2, we're going to be challenged. I'm going I'm I'm to lay my cards on the table. I always accepted what was explained to me as the explanation of what the passage means, that James is saying we are not saved by works. We are, the, the salvation is really a demonstration is demonstrated by the works that we do. But when you really study it out at first glance, you think, no, there's a contradiction here. And can I tell you, if there's a contradiction in the Bible, 
That, for me, is scary. Scarier than any costume. Listen, you go look at, at Halloween. We've got costumes that range from dumb to demonic, from silly to scary. Well, if I found a contradiction in the Bible, that would scare me. But others have studied this out, and, they, and I never even doubted it. it did, they said that, you know, basically he's saying, no, your faith will show up in works. But when you slow down and study the text, you go, that's, that's not so simple. I'm going to give you some, say, oh, should I scare you and let you, let you just hold on to that? There is an apparent contradiction in the Bible here. Let's work through it together. First thing I want you to see that James wants us to see is that faith leads us to do good works. Faith that leads us to do good works is true faith. What good is it then, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works? It's not any good. Can that faith save him? In other words, can a faith that doesn't produce good works, is that really the kind of faith that saves you? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, real world example, and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, but does not give them the things that are necessary for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It's a skeleton. Scary because it is so deceptive. It proclaims faith, yet does not give evidence of faith. So is there a contradiction here? There's not. We'll take a look. James is not denying that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He is saying that true saving faith will produce good works. But I must justify that claim. I must vindicate it, which I will do. And by the way, I'm using the word on purpose here. Justify. The good works he is talking about are not religious ceremonies like baptism or circumcision, but the meeting of a needs of a brother or a sister. Because charity begins at home. We see once again church as family emerge in the Bible. Faith without works is like a skeleton with no flesh. It is dead. So James is essentially saying, put some meat on those bones of faith by doing good works. Put some meat on the bones. You know, due to my age, I really feel it, and not in my happy way, when I lift weights. I, my bones ache. In fact, uh, I'm doing squats again, which is fun. And uh, my femur, I think there's those bones here, the upper thigh bones, they have this odd discomfort that I never had before when I do squats. And my knees, they, well, they sound kind of like um, Rice Krispies when you pour the milk on the top. It's, I don't like the sound. I, I've looked into it, and they say it, it's really nothing to worry about unless there's pain associated with it. It's not painful, but I do not like the sound. And I don't like the way that my hip, my thigh bones feel when I do the squats. So the alternative then is, however, to stop working out. I've been working out much more intensely this last eight months or so, and I'm, I'm enjoying it. I'm getting stronger. So I could just stop working out, and I can avoid the gross sound of snap, crackle, pop in my knees, and I can avoid the discomfort in my thigh bones. But the problem is, when I stop working out, my muscles will begin to atrophy, and I will get weak again. Now, to be honest with you, I'm still not even squatting half of what I did when I was 26, but I'm still pretty happy that I'm able to do it. Why am I sharing with you? Because I want to talk about the glories of weightlifting years ago. No. Some Christians, sometimes as Christians, 
We avoid doing good works because there is discomfort and pain sometimes that comes with it. James, let's go right to the text. He's talking about meeting the needs of a brother or sister. Well, meeting the needs of a brother or sister might require time or money. This week I heard about uh, some lady, a lady from our church, shared with me how, how uh, somebody said, you know, I'm gonna, we're going to take you to church next week because she has a hard time getting out. Now, that requires time and energy. And sometimes we avoid those things because it's discomforting sometimes. Sometimes we avoid tithing and giving our offerings, even though God says, test me in this. Give me the tithes and offerings, and then see what I will do. We, we, we struggle with pursuing holiness because it means, get this, I'll have to deny myself what I think I want to live life God's way. And that's not comfortable. And so what we have is a Christian life that while we truly proclaim faith in Christ, we're not really doing the good deeds. We're not pursuing the works that we're called to because it's uncomfortable. And just like when I, if I were to stop doing squats tomorrow for in about a month, you'd see serious atrophy and the leg muscle that I'm seeing start to show up. I check them out in the mirror, you know. There they are. I got quads again. I got a derriere again. They'd go away in a month. Well, guess what? As Christians, when we stop doing the good works, even if we've been doing it for a long time, you know we get weak too. And so what the text is telling us is not you're going to hell, it's put some meat on the bones because you're atrophying. When we live our Christian life this way, James tells us our faith isn't just weak, it might just be dead. Faith without works is like a skeleton without muscle. He is not saying that you are saved by doing good works, although it, it kind of sounds like it. We'll, we'll investigate further. Rather, the failure to do good works is a sign that your faith wasn't true faith, or it might not be true faith. It might just be a sign that your faith was never alive in the first place, but was indeed dead, a skeleton. But you know what's scarier than a skeleton? Coming to the end of life, crossing over, and then meeting Jesus face to face, and hearing him say, be gone from me, I never knew you. Happy Halloween, Freddy Krueger's got nothing on that. James is calling us to add works to our faith. So long as a Christian does not uh, have works, my old pastor used to say their salvation will always reside in the realm of doubt. A good Baptist pastor said, you know, God doesn't want you to be assured of your salvation when you're living in sin. And so the Bible confronts us, not to necessarily say you're going to hell, but it might be that. It might simply be, however, as James is intending it, to tell us to put some meat on the bone, to begin to pursue a Christian life. For the Christian, the right response to the message of James is to repent and to begin to do the good works. When I think back over the, the sort of the timeline of my own personal life, I, I made a profession of faith at the age of six, and I did kind of good until I was 17. Son, you're not allowed to do what I did. Watch this. From 17 to 24, I lived like I did not believe in Jesus. At 24, when I got serious about the Lord, since then, I have wrestled with this question. Was I saved at six or at 24? I think it was when I was at six. For from 17 to 24, the evidence that I was truly a believer was hard to find. 
James is calling for the Christian who is not currently doing works of faith, works of righteousness, to begin to, to do those. Second thing I want us to see in verse 18 and 19 is that faith that is true can be seen in our good works. Look at what James says in verse 18 and 19. But someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your faith, your works. And I will show you my faith by my works. They will reveal it. They will show it. You believe that God is one. You do well. Bravo. Even the demons believe and shudder. Think about this. Satan himself quotes scripture. So James is saying, you got good doctrine. You, doctrine matters. But even demons believe the things about God. And they're terrified. Paul's point, James's point here is, is yeah, you, you believe. I, I, he's not denying their faith in Jesus. He's calling them to live like they really believe. And, and so true faith is necessary for salvation, but true faith also leads to transformation. True faith is necessary for salvation, but it also leads to transformation. Let me prove it for you. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. Here's what's going on. The Apostle Paul has sent Timothy to this church in Ephesus. They are a church that's kind of messed up. They're teaching some false doctrine, and their people are not living like they believe in Jesus. So he, he sends them there, and he tells them some, gives them instructions. He says, teach the right things, correct those who are teaching false things, do it in love. And um, then he goes on to say, uh, well, he explains in verse, chapter 1, verse 5, Another truth that was hidden in plain sight and that jumped off the page to me about five years ago. He tells them what the purpose of good doctrine is. Remembering that, G, that Satan also knows truth about God. But didn't do him any good for some reason. 1 Timothy 1.5 The aim of our charge, the goal of our command, the, the goal of our teaching is love. That issues, that flows from a Pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Pure heart. I can share with you a story that shows the opposite of a pure heart. Back when I was in high school, I had a friend who dated a girl for about two years, and I said to him one day, do you love her? And she said, he said, sometimes. And then he shared with me a story about how they get into fights a lot, and then he would go out and buy flowers for her, not to make it up to her, but to make her feel guilty for being mad at him. That's not pure heart. That's the opposite. A pure heart wants what, to do what is right and good for the other because it's good for them and brings glory to God. So we have a pure heart and, and a, a, a sincere faith and a good conscience. A good conscience. Well, what is a conscience? A conscience is like this internal thermometer that tells you when something is safe or unsafe. Think about turkey. When you make turkey in, at Thanksgiving time, you put that thermometer in there and it tells you whether it's been cooked enough. And if it's not cooked enough, why? Uh, you're going to get, well, you're going to get worms or something, right? Don't eat it yet. Throw it back in the, it's not safe. It's not right. It's not good. A good conscience is like the thermometer. It tells you when something is good or right, safe, dangerous, or wrong. So we teach good doctrine so that we would have this internal thermometer that tells us what's right and what's wrong, and it flows from us naturally. Then we have a sincere faith. A sincere faith 
not only has a correct doctrine of Christ and how we are saved, but would also call us to live light, right, righteously. First, Tim, First Thessalonians 4.3 is similar. It's along the lines of this constant transformation. First Thessalonians 4.3 says this, This is the will of God, your sanctification. What sanctification? That's like a, it's a Bible word that basically means holiness. So through following Christ and faith in Christ, you begin to be transformed, and you begin to live life in a way that brings honor and glory to God. You are holy, you sin less, and do more good. Thus you are more useful to God and others. Your life brings glory to God and good to others. Paul adds to the verse. Here's how it continues. This is the will of God, your sanctification, specifically that you abstain from sexual immorality. So he gets really specific. What would this look like? Well, in, in, in more recent years, one of the kind of the heroes of the faith, at least to me, is Billy Graham. And he had this thing that some pastors, myself included, called the Billy Graham rule. He would not be alone with a person of the opposite sex except for his wife. Because the Bible says avoid the appearance of evil. And he didn't want it to even look like, even with his daughter, because he, he's like, well, not everyone knows who my daughter is. And it would look strange if I'm out to dinner with a lady they didn't know. And, and so this idea of sanctification uh, is holiness. and inv involves a lot of things. But Paul gets specific about sexual uh, immorality. And those things were live and well in the ancient days. Don't, don't get this idea like all of a sudden sexual morality just emerged on the scene in America. It was that way in the Bible. Some of the stuff that was going on would stun you. But we're not, it's already scary enough on Halloween. We're not going to dig into that. True faith will be revealed by good works. So James basically goes on to ask the question, do you need more proof? And here's where we get into the apparent contradiction, which I, I don't think is a contradiction at all, but you have to study first. Let's continue. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, there's James coming in hot, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. You feel the tension yet? And in the same way also, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Let's handle the easy one, the last one, the thing about Rahab. So the Israelites, after they had been led out of Egypt, which involved God literally showing up and stomping a mud hole in all the false gods of Egypt and all the, all the people in the wilderness. Well, the news about, this, about what God was doing in Israel, beating up all these false gods, it had gotten back to the people in Jericho where Rahab lived. Well, as time goes on, they... The Israelites send in some spies, and they go into the land, and they end up encountering Rahab. And she says, we've all heard about what your God's done, and we're scared to death about it. This is my paraphrase. 
and she says, when you come back in, he, they ask, he, she offers to help them because they were now looking for the spies. She sends them out and says, look, go out a different way uh, so that you don't get caught because I know God's with you and I'm not going to go against the true God. And she said, but when you come back, don't kill me or my family. And Rahab, of course, is spared. She's the great-great-grandmother of David and thus the great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother of Jesus. But watch this. Here's what James is doing. She didn't just believe the truth about God, that he was a strong warrior. She responded in faith by saying, I'm going to side with the people of God. And so she, sent, she sends him out a different way, and because she did that, the Israelite spies didn't get caught. Now let's get into the difficult part. Does James contradict Paul? Because James and Paul both cite the life of Abraham in support of what they're teaching in the passages. So Paul says this in, in, in Romans chapter 4, verse 3 through 5. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. That is, took place in Genesis 15, 6. Catch this, when Abraham was 75 years old. Catch that. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Translation, when you work, in exchange for payment, you've earned it. Earned it. That's a works righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Paul is pointing to the example of Abraham, who in Genesis 15, 6, was declared righteous. James also references that in 2.24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And then he goes on to talk about the event in which Abraham, in obedience to God, offers Isaac on the altar. Also a scary passage. God had said, all right, this, here's what is going on. God had made promises to Abraham when he was 75. He said, yeah, I know that you and Sarah have not been able to have kids, but you're going to have a kid. And then a time went on, and they still hadn't had kids, and God reiterates the promise. And Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteous. It was impossible in Abraham's strength. Then and there, God declared him righteous. Paul points to that and says, since then you see evidence that God has been declaring people righteous, that means saved, justified, by faith. It began all the way back with Abraham. So he's telling the Jewish Christians, don't be shocked that we're saved by grace and not by works of the law. We're justified through faith. Years later, when um, Moses, well, we'll come to Moses later, but what James is essentially saying, he's not denying that, James, that, that Abraham was righteous in Genesis 15, 6. As the story continues, he is declared justified when he offers up Isaac on the, offer, on the altar. But it isn't a statement that he wasn't really justified back in Genesis 15, 6. It was just proven 62 years later when he offered up his son on the altar. But he was already justified for the whole 62 
years. You say, why are you making such a big deal about this? Well, here's why. I watch a lot of video, and I hear a lot of preachers, and I've watched some guys who were teaching the Bible, and they were using James 2 to say that it isn't just that you're saved by grace through faith. It's also grace plus works. And they added a specific work that they wanted you to do to make sure you knew you were saved. That's a problem because that's a false gospel. So instead of having a really simple sermon when I, on Monday and I started to look at it, I said, well, I guess I'm going to have to deal with this. So James, another thing we've got to catch here is James and Paul are using two similar words but not using them the same way. Both of them use a Greek word, dikaiao, justified. But when Paul uses it, he is speaking of justify in the sense of God declaring you righteous, thus saved. When James uses the word dikaiao, he is saying it, using it more in the sense of vindicated. So when I said earlier that I made a statement, now I'm going to have to justify my claim, that's vindicating what I said earlier. Two sides of the same coin. Abraham was righteous in Genesis 15:6, and he was demonstrated to be righteous in Genesis 22, 62 years later. So we see then, what about Moses? Was James contradicting Moses? Again, he's righteous and he's declared righteous. He's justified in Genesis 15, 6. 62 years later, God says, hey, all right, go sacrifice your son. He's finally come along, and I want you to sacrifice him. Genesis 22, 9 through 12. Abraham built the altar there on Mount Moriah. And laid the wood in order and bound Isaac and his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife out to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. You've been vindicated as a guy who believes God, seeing that you have not withheld your own son, your only son, from me. Can I suggest to you that in the life of Abraham you see a transformation take place? Because before he enters into this covenant with God, which took place in Genesis 15, he's lying about who his wife is because he's afraid that people are going to kill him and take her because she's fine. She's a good-looking lady. Then he enters the covenant, and you know what he does? But a few years later, he does the exact same thing. Why? Because although God had promised, Sarah's going to bear you a son, so you're not going to be killed, and she's not going to be taken from you, he still wasn't really sure. What does that mean? It means he, he believes, but, oh, Lord, help his unbelief. By the time you get to Genesis 22, he is so confident that God is going to fulfill his promises. He's like, all right, Isaac, saddle up. We're going to Mount Moriah. I think he knew all along that God wasn't going to let him go through with it. Saving faith is transforming faith. And we see Abraham was not a perfect man. He was declared justified. He lied to Abimelech and then in the Med of Negev. And by 137 years old, he was being radically transformed by his faith in God. He trusted God fully. And thus, God says, now I know that you fear God. 
Saving faith is transforming faith. True faith will result in transformation. We are saved by faith in Jesus, but true saving faith in Jesus results in obedience unless it is a mere skeleton. Faith without works is just a costume. Faith without works, verse 26. Faith that doesn't lead to good works is a dead faith. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also apart from faith apart from works is dead. Body without the spirit is useless. It's lifeless. Just as a skeleton without muscle and skin is useless. Like a battery without energy or an air guitar, they are as useless as faith without works. But let's not misunderstand James. He isn't confronting us about lifeless faith to say that you're going to hell. He is confronting us so that we will repent and put some muscle on that skeleton of faith by doing good works. God is calling believers to repent of lifeless faith that has no works. How do we apply this? Perhaps you're, you can see a time in your life where there was a robust faith. It was muscular. But right now the faith is kind of atrophied. If you are able, take stock of where you are at. Begin to resume the journey. It might feel awkward at first, like working out intensely for the first time in a long time. But the, it tends to come back. So take stock of where you are and, and resume the journey. How would God have you add faith to your works? Maybe it's baptism. Listen, baptism, we don't teach that baptism saves you, but a person who is genuinely saved ought to be baptized. Because Jesus said to do it, and he did it. As a church, we're called to make disciples, and a part of that includes baptizing people. What about tithes and offerings? Bible in the Bible, God says, hey, test me on this stuff. See if you can outgive me. Perhaps for you it's a decision to abandon sin and pursue holiness. Things, some of these things are not very comfortable. I was shocked. To, uh, I never thought of this before, but I, I was talking to Steve Thornsboro. You, you know him. And he, we were talking about baptism. He said, you know, I knew a lady that was terrified of water. Driving over a bridge, she'd have to close her eyes. Fair enough. We can make meaningful accommodations around that. The Bible tells us that we're to be baptized by immersion. You see that example. But if someone's willing, but they have this sort of thing that kind of hinders them, you know, we'll find other ways. But be obedient, because faith without works is dead. Finally, be a part of a evangelism as a team sport. Tomorrow we have the, the switch, and certainly... Uh, there's opportunities to serve. There'll be guests in the building and uh, find a place to serve or just go around welcoming people that are faces that you either know are not a part of our church or um, you know, haven't, ever, haven't seen in a long time, but go welcome guests. Tomorrow, uh, next week, we have the chili cook-off. Pray about who to invite okay, and then invite them. Pick them up if you need to. Make sure to sit with them. And you say, well, preacher, have you done this? Yeah, I did. I already got two. I'm going for a third one this week, so somebody invite four. Let's have a competition. But it's not our fault if they don't come, but it is our responsibility to invite them. And so I would encourage you to take a, be a part of evangelism as a team sport. Finally, as, 
Rob and the teams come back for our final song. The Bible says that um, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And what that means is when you, when you come to a place where you know who Jesus is and you believe the truth, the Bible doesn't, God doesn't just want you to sit there and say, I, I believe this stuff. He actually wants you to call out to him in faith. And so this morning, I invite you, during this last song, if you'd like to call on Jesus in saving faith, I invite you, make your way to the front. And help you call the Lord. He will hear you and he will save you. Please stand for our song of response. You've been listening to Dr. Dan Kitnoya, pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in Tilton, Illinois. If you'd like to learn more, visit our website, calvarytilton.com. That's calvarytilton.com. Thank you for listening.